Luke chapter 19 is where we are this morning. Um, I'm blessed by this because it's been a while since we've been in the book of Luke because we had Charlie Kirk here and then I spoke on a couple of uh, uh, topical messages, one in particular last week. But when we left off in Luke chapter 18, we had taken a look at the rich young ruler. And uh, in that story, the rich young ruler... um, Jesus commanded him to sell all that he had and to come and follow him. And he went away sorrowful because he possessed much. And, um, and though that, that parable doesn't apply to everyone, it does apply to some. And, and the idea is what separates you between, it, what, what, what gets in the way of between you and God. And for him it happened to be that. And he was a good man and he went away sorrowful. We don't know how the story ended. Uh, the Lord loved him. The scripture says he loved him. Um, and he, had, he just had to process life. But it really baffled the disciples because as we studied uh, a couple of weeks back, this idea that when you walk with the Lord according to Psalm 1, which begins with that word blessed, which means a shed, which means happiness. Oh, how happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And upon that law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of living water that produces its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So if you're walking with the Lord, you're going to prosper. And as we saw, we saw this idea of, of um, the Lord saving Abraham by grace through faith. Abraham believed God, it was accredited him as righteousness, and then 430 years later gives the law. And the law is what God asks us to focus on because that's how we dwell together. That's how we build community. And we saw that moral law imparted to the, to the three to five million Jews that came out of slavery and they lived for 40 years without a standing army or police force because they had a moral prerogative from God. They were accountable to God and accountable to each other. And they began to flourish and industry started to pop up. And wealth is created when two people benefit. You have a farmer and a baker and the farmer sells the grain and the baker buys it and the farmer buys more fields and hires more workers with the profit he makes and the baker produces the bread and he sells it and whatever profit he makes, he buys more ovens, hires more workers and everyone's employed and wealth is created and a society flourishes and needs are met and creativity occurs. Well, with that being said, when the Lord gave the law and we started to live together in unity, then God went on and added more laws and these were the Levitical laws that had to do with the protection of private property. And how to deal with private property. And now we come to a place where uh, Jesus says that you have to sell everything and follow me. And, 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 And the disciples are stunned. They just said, Lord, who then can be saved? I mean, we all have something. And as we kind of took an assessment of our lives, every one of us in this room is far richer than the rich young ruler because we all possess a cell phone. Could you imagine having a cell phone back then? You wouldn't have got any reception, but could you imagine... But could you imagine just having a simple solar-powered calculator to process numbers? I mean, these are things that, you have a microwave, you have a refrigerator, you have an ice maker, you have, these are things that anyone who was the wealthiest in that, that era would never have comprehended. Flushing toilets, running water, sanitary systems, uh, x-ray machines, ultrasounds, MRIs. Uh, we, we are wealthy beyond measure, anything that that rich young ruler could have ever possessed. So we look at our lives and, and we all have property and we're watching as we're, we're losing more and more of that private property because people are taking larger and larger sums of it. 
Uh, we have the highest income tax of any state in the nation. Uh, I think we have the highest gas tax, if not the highest, the second highest. Uh, th- we get taxed for everything. Uh, we, we are an unbelievably taxed society here in California. And, and I don't have to remind you that. You're like, yeah, no, duh. But I, you voted for it, so I don't, I don't get... You know. Oh, yeah, no, we tax us again on gasoline. I Really, I don't know who... What, what were we thinking? How... Uh, where was I? Let's get back to this. <laughs> so so we, we have this private property, and how does a community flourish, and what do we do? And the, and the disciples were baffled. They were baffled. And then, and then it, the story goes from Luke 18 that we studied into Luke 19. And, and I'm jumping past this because I've studied it before, and you can go back and take a look at it. But it's Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector. He's despised by the Jews and not respected by the Romans. He's a Jewish guy who's exacting taxes upon his own people for the sake of the Roman Empire. And he's despised. But he has this heart because his life is empty. He's a wealthy man, but his life is empty. He climbs up into a sycamore tree, and he waits for the Lord who's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, but he waits for the Lord, and he cries out to the Lord. The Lord calls him down from the sycamore tree because he was a tiny little guy. He couldn't see over the crowd, so he climbed up into a tree, and the Lord calls him down from the sycamore tree. He goes, and he has a meal with Zacchaeus in his home. Zacchaeus basically says, look, Lord, I'm going to give half of what I owe fourfold back to anyone that I've wronged. And the Lord basically says to Zacchaeus, salvation has visited your home today. And this is another financial insight. And then the Lord continues his march towards Jerusalem. And as he's heading to Jerusalem, he tells this parable. And this is where we find ourselves this morning is this parable. It's called the parable of the Minas or Minas or however you want to pronounce it. I've seen both uh, and I don't know. If it's tomato or tomato, I'm not sure. But I'm going to say Minos. And it's this parable of the Minos. Minos is a, a sum of currency. It's, it's, a, it's like a quarter or a dollar. It's, it's a type of currency within the culture. We'll explain it momentarily, what it was worth. And the Lord tells a parable. And this parable is critical because it's not the parable of the talents, which was a separate uh, parable. Uh, this one is different. And it's interesting because here we are in this day and age and, and we just saw the State of the Union address with the president. Um, we, we saw a division in the nation just simply in, in that picture of the State of the Union having the president and the Speaker of the House. He's just, you could see the tension. And the tension went over to the national prayer breakfast and it would, she's over here and he's there and they're, you're like, this is a prayer breakfast. What is going on here? They're just like, ah, ah, ah. I, that's what I witnessed. I don't know about you, but it was odd to me. And, and I'm, I'm taking this all in, and yet there's this declaration as we're watching the Democratic candidates step forward and the party, the Democratic Party, trying to figure out where they're going, what they're doing. Some are, not many, one, renouncing socialism. Others are embracing it. Um, you have a president, sitting president, who's saying the nation will never be socialist. You have a nation divided that if the election were done with those 30 years of age and younger, 75% of them would vote for socialism. Uh, this is, this is the, the direction we're going. Even the church today is divided because we're looking at social justice. We're embracing socialist ideas. We're, we're dividing based on skin color and socioeconomic status and... And the church is embracing many of this. And, and if you go online and you try to get commentary on the parable of the Minas, you're going to see conflicting uh, commentaries based on the theological position that folks would hold. And some would renounce capitalism. Others would, would embrace socialism. Some would renounce socialism and embrace capitalism, all based on this text. 
and you're looking at it thinking, okay, what is God trying to communicate? And as I began to look at this, I was deeply moved by the passage itself as I began to kind of process through it. And I, I think the church itself is somewhat complicit in where we are today, especially in the lack of education in our young people, that we would come to a place where this parable would be difficult for us to comprehend because it's not that difficult. Jesus makes it very simple. And so we're going to undertake a study of it. And uh, with that, if you would turn to uh, Luke 19, I'm going to begin with verse 11. If you'll stand with me, I'm going to read out loud if you'll follow along silently. We stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. And we always want to make that distinction. What you're holding in your hand is the living, breathing word of God. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Uh, a great sermon would be if I just read this and we went home. Uh, but when I add my commentaries, sometimes it helps and sometimes it's confusing. Today, I pray it will help. Amen? I'll begin reading. Now, as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable, a uh, real quick parable. I, I know many of you have heard it a thousand times, but there's folks who are new, so bear with me. Parable. Parallel lines, they're alongside each other, right? So Jesus is telling an earthly illustration alongside a heavenly truth. And that way they understand it, parallel, alongside. He spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, Jesus said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. Let me repeat that. Do business till I come. Let me repeat it. Do business, business, till I come. He's a business man. <laughs> do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. So he had ten minas, and he gave one to each of the ten servants. It's not like he gave each ten. He gave each of them one minas, or one mina. Okay. Master, your mina has earned ten minas. Verse 17, and he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in, a very, in very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. And then another man came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept and put in a handkerchief, or under my mattress, or fill in the blank, buried in the backyard. For I feared you, because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? I don't even know what the interest rate is, what, less than 2%. He would have been happy with that. He didn't even put it in a bank. He just put it in a handkerchief. And he said to those who stood by, verse 24, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And then he goes back to the citizens. Remember the citizens that hated him? 
and didn't want him to rule over him. Then he goes back to deal with those guys. First he dealt with the servants. Now he's going back to deal with the citizens. And he says, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. This is going to be a fun one to get through. We certainly need to ask the Lord for his wisdom. So let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your wisdom, and you say, if any man lacks wisdom, all he need but do is ask of you, and you'll give freely to him who asks. And so, God, we ask now for your wisdom. And God, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so we hold in our hand the living, breathing word of God. We want to rightly divide it. We want to know that truth, and we want to apply it to our lives. And Lord, we thank you that your spirit, Holy Spirit, you lead us into all truth, so we invite you now to do an amazing work in and through us. And so, God, please, I pray you would bless the study of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat. Again, just going through the recap of what we did before we began with the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. And uh, I pulled up a little picture of him here. In the passage, as you recall, all these things, the, the rich young ruler says to Jesus, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus heard these things and he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. Uh, he said, I've kept all these things since my youth and it was the things that Jesus had listed of the 10 commandments. He didn't list the first five of our relationship with God, he listed the second five, which is our relationship with each other, and he said, I've kept all those since my youth. And Jesus said, really? You know, he didn't question him. He didn't go, you liar. I have a record of all the stuff you've done in your life, and all things are laid bare before the eyes of God, and let me just show a recap of how you have not kept it. He didn't do that. He took him at his word, and then the man really believed it to be sincere, and the Lord said, okay, let's just test that. I need you to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And he just, he just did kind of hit him. He just said, you know, I, uh, I, I don't think I can do that. This is the one thing that you lack. You got all this other stuff down, but this is the one thing you lack. And if you do this, you're going to have treasure in heaven. He's like, well, I have treasure on the earth. He goes, yeah, but you'll have treasure in heaven. Yeah, but I have treasure on the earth. Yeah, but you'll have treasure in heaven. And the treasure in heaven was almost, it, was, it wasn't nearly as important to him as the treasure was on earth. And he walked away sorrowful. The other account of this passage in the other gospel says that the Lord loved him. And the Lord does love him. And the Lord loves you, even if you struggle with putting money before God. He still loves you. He just knows that, that you become like that what you worship. And money is dead and lifeless, and that's what will happen with you. You become cold and lifeless. And, and money can, can deal with symptoms, but never the problem. And money is an accelerant. It just makes you more of what you already are. And, and so here, in this case, he was struggling. And it was so baffling to the disciples that they said, Lord, who then can be saved? And the disciples are struggling over this because they see wealth as an, as an expression of righteousness. Again, with Psalm 1 that we covered. And then immediately the Lord goes into this story about Zacchaeus, who is a legitimate figure. This isn't a parable. Zacchaeus is up in the sycamore tree. He's waiting for the Lord. He's a rich man, but he's lived a duplicitous life. And he doesn't have any friends. He's got a lot of money, but no friends. And that's the hardest thing about being rich is you don't really know who your friends are. Some of you, most of us, I would think, have no idea what that means because we don't have that kind of wealth. But some of you do. And you know what it's like? That Are, are they being nice to me because they want what I have? And, it, and you, you never really know what you're dealing with in life. Money is difficult to hold and 
be responsible for. And, and Zacchaeus' life is a, is a difficult one where he's empty and he's waiting for the Lord to reconcile. And Jesus sees him up in the tree. He calls him down. He says, let's go to your house. And he brings more tax collectors. And Zacchaeus wants to minister to him. And the Lord lays it out. And Zacchaeus willingly, unlike the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus willingly says, you know what? I, I want to get right with you. And the scripture says in Luke 19, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. He said, You know what, Zacchaeus? You're on the right track, buddy. You get it. You get it. And the Lord commends Zacchaeus. And it's even baffling the disciples more. Wait a minute. Do I have to get rid of everything? What is going on here? And the Lord is still marching to Jerusalem for the crucifixion. And as he's coming to Jerusalem, it brings us to what we're studying this morning. It's the parable of the Minas. And, and the parable of the Minas is different than the parable of the talents. As you can see here, the, the division, the, the parable of the talents is in Matthew 25. And the parable of the Minas is in Luke 19. Uh, there were only three servants in the parable of the talents, yet there's ten servants in the parable of the Minas. The servants were given one, two, and five talents. However, the parable of the minas, each servant was given one mina. The rewards were identical in the parable of the talents. But what's fascinating about this one is the rewards uh, for the parable of the minas were proportional. Cities. The two stories are similar but different. The parable of the minas differs in that the faithful servants are rewarded in proportion to their gains. Let me repeat that and pay attention to it. The faithful servants are rewarded in proportion to their gains. Pondering that? I'll pause for significance. So you get what you put in. If you don't put anything in, you don't get anything out. You're like, okay, what's a mina? It's like, it's like Noah. What's a cubit? What's a mina? Well, mina was worth 100 drachmas. Accordingly, the present day value would be about $65.40, which was, amounted to about a fourth of the wages earned annually by an agricultural worker. And that's a picture of a mina. And this is where we find ourselves. It's proportional to what you put in is what you get out. Ten servants are each given an equal amount of money. God distributes some gifts differently according to his own pleasure. Others are universally given to every believer. And such is the gospel which is given to each Christ Christian in equal measure. Now we're all given certain things in equal measure. Everyone has, well most of us, uh, some of us maybe were born differently. But, but in general terms, most of us were given two lungs. I think we can say fairly that all of us were given a heart. Anyone need... CPR assistance, we were all given a brain, yes? So we're, we're given these talents, minas, really what is called as capital. Oh, where are you going with this, Pastor? Capital. Capital. Capital is an interesting concept. You're being entrusted with a good resource. In a democracy, the state, which is merely a unit term applied to the public as a whole, is the source of all rights that individuals may enjoy. Let me explain. Democracy. 
demos kratos. Demos is common people. Kratos is rule, the rule of people. So in a society, in a democracy, the state, which is merely a unit term applied to the public, how we're all going to agree to live together, what's going to be our system of government that we're going to operate under in full agreement that these are the rules we're all going to play by? It's like when you play Monopoly. What are the rules of the game? You all read the rules, and do you, do you put $200 in the kitty for Pasco? Everybody has different rules, but you all have to come to an agreement on what the rules are. And this is this idea of democracy. It's a unit term applied to the public as a whole. It's a source of all rights that individuals may enjoy. And you're like, wait a minute. I, I believe in our constitutional republic, and, and we, we, we have inalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which we covered previously. And no, political science recognizes no so-called natural rights. Political science doesn't recognize so-called natural rights. And the reason why is even the fundamental right to life is enjoyed by an individual only insofar as the state grants it to him. The public. We believe in life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's what our founders said, yes? Hello? Well, then what about the portion of our population after we just went through Sanctity of Life Sunday of the human beings in the womb who don't have the ability to vote and have no voice to speak and aren't given the right to life. What about them? Where, where is this state? Where are these intrinsic natural rights given by God applied? Well, if the public doesn't stand for those, then they're no longer the right. Political science recognizes no so-called natural rights. We even in the church would look at a, a nation state that legalizes the destruction of a portion of our society. How do we do that? Well, they're less than human. They're not real. They're, they're blobs of tissue. They're clumps of cells. They're too small. And yet that's critical because where does the value of life come from? Who establishes that? All the rights that the state grants to an individual carry with them certain obligations which the individual owes to the state, such as the obedience to the law, payment of taxes, etc. We all are in agreement. How do we pay for the roads? Well, we all pay a portion. How do we do this? Well, we all chip in to do that. And we all vote to have tax, gas taxes increase. We have the highest uh, income tax. Uh, we're now going to look at split role of Proposition 13 so that your businesses, if they were part of your family, are now going to lose the Proposition 13 protection. And we're, we're, we're going to, and, and no, no society, no culture, no state has ever taxed itself in, into wealth or prosperity. But we're, we're on that road. We think this is the way to go. And so we do possess the highest taxes in the land. And this is what we've agreed to as a, a group of people. And, and we, we search the scriptures and we come up and we say, well, you know, we don't want to apply these truths to culture. And yet the Lord is very clear and do business till I come. Do business till I come. Hmm. You see, all of us in this room are individuals entrusted with, here we go, all of us in this room are individuals who are entrusted with, here we go, all of us in this room are individuals entrusted with capital. 
you've been given something. Your heart's beating, your lungs are moving. You have breath in your lungs. You have talents and skills. You've been entrusted with capital. Thus, as servants, ascribing to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, servants, you are now capitalists. Capitalist. The capitalist who makes no use of his trust, even though he may lose it, does not fulfill his duty unless he actually adds something to the store of wealth. You can't put it in a handkerchief or bury it or put it under your mattress. God created you beforehand with works, poema, that you would walk in that. You give your heart to the Lord. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You accept him as your Lord and Savior. And he entrusts you with capital. And the requirement of that capital is to multiply it. Do business until I come. Do business. Well done, good servant. A thousand percent return on what I entrusted to you. A 500% return on what I entrust you. He didn't say well done servant, but he did give him proportionally five cities. He gave the 1,000% return. He gave him 10 cities. For a $65 investment that was multiplied, he gave him five cities. The one who just wrapped it in a handkerchief. I got my get out of hell free card. I'm saved by grace through faith. The idea is the one who put, his hang, put it in the handkerchief is the person who says, God is sovereign. God appoints all positions of authority. I don't have to deal with government. I don't have to be involved in the civic responsibility. I don't have to go to the school board. I don't have to participate in city hall. I don't have to go and, and participate in my homeowner's association. I don't have to be the one to carry that load. God is sovereign. He appoints all positions of authority. He appoints one, takes one down. He's sovereign. So just sit there. And do nothing, because God's sovereign. Don't invest in the lives of your children. Don't front load them. Don't tell them to work hard. Don't do any of those things. God's sovereign. Just put it in a napkin. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Your business will never flourish if that's your attitude. It could be your spiritual position, but it certainly isn't the way you operate your family. It isn't the way you operate your business. It's not the way you raise your children. Why would that be your spiritual direction in life? And we think that, well, maybe we look at this and we struggle over it. We struggle over it. There's a a pretty cool dude who was instrumental in the British Empire, and I know that that word empire doesn't settle well with folks nowadays. It's not a politically astute term. It's not correct. But it is historical. The British Empire was influenced by a man who never really held title. He was in the parliament for one season, but was more of an academic and influenced parliamentarians to understand what their responsibilities were, that they would rule in a moral capacity. He was a theologian par excellence and and worked his tail off and Never had any large volumes of books, but his quotations and his personal discipleship in the world of governance was instrumental in so many that would cause the Victorian era of England to flourish. 
where the gospel would stretch to every corner that the sun would never set on the British Empire. His name was Lord Acton. He lived from 1834 to 1902. And this is a quote of his, despotic power is always accompanied by corruption of morality. And this is, this is why I love this parable and why we're going to focus on it in a greater capacity. We are, in, we are at a crossroads in America right now where half of the room, depending on your age, and we've covered this before, but half the room according to your age and the other half according to your age, we're divided over capitalism and socialism. Some of us believe in capitalism. We're all about it and... and uh, and, and we're, we're committed. And, and when, the, when the president says this nation will never be socialist and we cheer her. And another realm of the room who are Christians look at that and say this, this, this is immoral. How could there be such a, a disconnect for those who call on the name of the Lord? The idea is the younger people look at the The disconnect between the haves and the have-nots. Those that are accumulating capital and making all kinds of money and yet seeing you know, abortion and, and, and human sex trafficking and, and human trafficking and, and seeing poverty around the world and seeing the church just you know, getting more toys and bigger cars and bigger houses and, and more luxurious things. And the young people look at that and say, there's... there's there's a disconnect between what I'm reading about the Lord and what I'm seeing from those above me. And I don't know that I necessarily want that. I, I, this, isn't, this isn't healthy. How do we fix that? And so the idea is equal outcome. Everybody's given a talent, the same talent, everybody gets the same return. Well, as we've covered that before, it ends up in a, in a decrease in productivity because God put us on this earth to do business until he comes, to multiply our talent. Apathy is not multiplying a talent, but in the same regard, being wealthy and immoral, being a despotic power is always accompanied by corruption and morality. Capitalism is, is something you may embrace, but if you don't have morality, you're just a wealthy thief. You, you have, this, isn't, this isn't what God intended. Yet capitalism is, is clearly depicted in this parable, but it's capitalism embraced by love and truth, not by selfish interest. Lord Acton was a godly man. He wrote, economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish. Religious freedom flourishes in an altruistic society, and I have news for you. The wealthiest nation on the face of the earth is the United States of America. We're capitalists, and we're the most altruistic nation in the world. You take all of Europe and combine their giving and double it, it doesn't equal what America gives. We are generous people. Capitalism produces altruism. We're generous. That's a good thing. 86 cents of every dollar in evangelism comes from the United States of America. When you increase the size of government and you take away their ability to retain what they have worked hard to earn, their altruism drops. 
13.5% income tax in the state, let alone what the nation does, the federal government. Then you add a gas tax on that, and then you add you know, the school fees, and, the, and it goes on and on and on. And after a while, you go, you know what? I've already given it the office. And they're wasting it. Why do I need to give here? And altruism drops. Giving drops. In Europe, the church struggles to get anything. The greater the government, the less the altruism. And this is, this is, what, this is what Lord Acton pointed out. He said, economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish. We have religious freedom because we have economic freedom. We have economic freedom because we have religious freedom. The two have to go together. There needs to be morality in the concepts of what God is doing. The market can function only when people behave morally. So faith and freedom must go hand in hand. We're only as good as our word. We're only as good as our morality and our honesty. To do business in that capacity is dangerous. You can't, you can't do business if you don't have rules to play by. And those rules have to be honest. If you tell me you're going to do something, do it, and vice versa. And then Lord Acton said, liberty is the condition which makes it easy for conscience to govern. He explained it in a greater capacity. He said, liberty is not the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought. You're free to honor God. And when you honor God, you're going to be given capital. And if you love the capital more than the responsibility of multiplying that capital, we're going to have problems. God's in charge of it. If we remove morality from our society and we do not contend for these intrinsic natural rights of man and we accept anything less and don't contend for morality to be infused in the democracy, we have a problem. And the church is complicit. We've become apathetic. Our young people have no clue that in the scriptures themselves are complete studies on economics, on immigration, on how to govern ourselves. They're, not, they're no longer taught. I, I, my son attends Oaks Christian. There's many, many things I love about the school, and there's some things I really am concerned about, strongly concerned about. And, and quite honestly, I'm, I'm looking to see if my son's spiritual Direction is strengthened. And yet, I've committed to him as, as an 18-year-old getting ready to launch into secondary education time together where I'm taking him through a book called The 12 Rules of Living by Jordan Peterson. And we began to read it together because I'm, I'm concerned that because it says Christian, are, are you growing in your understanding of what the scriptures say? I am, I am deeply concerned over socialism somehow being espoused as Christian. It just doesn't, it doesn't exist. I understand why young people are drawn to it because they want, they want fairness. But older folks should know where to lead them accordingly in the, in the scriptures. And not to divide us, but to bring unity that we would strive to bring these things about and add morality to the teachings of society. And so in this process, sitting down with him, one of my favorites is the very first rule 
of Jordan Peterson. He's, he's not a believer, though he embraces the teachings of Christ and he uses them in his book. And he is actually taking a sabbatical to um, pursue the claims of Christ since his wife has passed. He writes in the very first rule for living, it says, put your shoulders back and stand up straight. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's it? Well, let's think about that. As opposed to, <laughs> you walk into a room. I mean, life is beating you. You have no motivation, no drive. I don't know why I'm here. Just, but when you walk into a room, You look him in the eye, a good handshake. Jordan Peterson says, territory matters. Wait, what? He goes through, he's a, he's a psychiatrist, psychologist. He says, when I was a young boy, growing up on a farm, wrens would, would squabble and sing and fight and put out their plumes. And they'd, they'd fill boots with, with sticks to do their nesting. And the, the chickens would... would you know, who would, who would be the, the, the rooster on, uh, in charge of everything and the pecking order and who'd get the first and you'd see each different level of chicken and there'd be the fluffy ones and they'd be combating and then the weaselly and they just, they wouldn't get any food and, and even lobsters at the bottom of the ocean when the, when the dead carcasses start to float down, the, the lobsters fight for territory as to where the biggest chunk of meat's gonna come and they, they, they look at each other like, this is, this is my area here in this general, you, oh, really? Is that, and they, they territory matters. And, and, and you're gonna make a difference in life. So when you walk into a room, realize that God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And you, you, don't, you, you walk in with this idea that God has called me to this. I'm not afraid. I have a backbone, a spine. The, if, if you're going to attack one of these young ones, you've got to get through me. I'm not only a moral person, I'm a person of character. I, not only am I not going to do what's wrong, I am going to do what's right. And if you have a problem... Amen, so do I. Son, stand up, yes, dad. Yes, dad. And, and that one lesson, amazing. He brought my wife lunch. Mom, I really felt bad the way I wanted to bring you lunch. I'm like, <laughs> stand up straight, boy. This is good. And you contrast that with some of the kids you see, they've just come out of the basement with five hours of Nintendo. They didn't have any homework. They've gotten just, they don't even read. Their brains are just devoid of any meaningful thought. They can barely formulate a sentence. <laughs> and yet you walk up to a kid like that and you're like, are you alive? Do, do you need shock paddles? 
Just move. I got things to do. Okay, I'll just move over here. And what the Lord is saying is, I've given you something, use it. I've given you something, use it. Now, pride comes when you put your shoulders back and you stand up straight. You can have pride. You can think yourself better than others. You can occupy a territory in pride, not letting anyone in, nor use those giftings and that territory God's given to you to help others. I got my own. Try taking this and you're going to be picking up your teeth with your broken arm. Or do you help those less fortunate? You see, capitalism without morality is dangerous. It was Teddy Roosevelt who said, to educate a man in mind and not in morals is to educate a menace to society. Now, how do we deal with this passage? The best interest of the public will be served if we see it correctly. I look at this and I think of what Lord Acton said, that liberty is not the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought. And I think oftentimes in capitalism, I've heard this said over and over again by folks that have accumulated great wealth. Um, They say, you know, I never got a job from a poor man. It's true. It's true, I've never gotten a job from a poor man. But I have received a job from a rich man who treated me poorly. How about that? I got the money. If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. You'll shut up, do as you're told, and like it. I own you. There's no scriptural basis for that. Ever. Ever. So as we kind of come to a conclusion on this, when you're entrusted with capital, you become a capitalist. And you're to make something of it. The group received each one mina. And they were called to do business until the Lord returned. There were citizens who hated this master and they didn't want to submit to him. They were citizens of the noblemen who lived in the area he ruled. And these are not servants who received the minas. So there's two separate groups here. And Jesus points out in the parable that the noblemen did nothing to deserve the rejection of these people. It was only because the citizens had hearts full of hate They were envious. Oh, that's the basis for socialism. I envy what you have, and I covet it. And I'm going to create a society where I can take it. And I'll create a church that will promote it. And we'll couch it in Christian terms to make it tenable. We're going to do equal outcome. Destroy productivity. We're even watching different religious leaders around the world embrace this as though somehow wealth redistribution 
is the answer. In verses 15 to 19 of the passage, when the master returned, he dealt first with his servants, and then he later dealt with the rebellious citizens. And we're going to do that in order, and I'll do it in eight minutes. He came to the first one, and he was impressed with him. He had a thousand percent increase, and he actually commended him verbally. He said, well done. Well done, good servant. He said, because you were faithful with little, have authority over ten cities. And he demonstrated faithfully handing over the master's resources, he was given authority over 10 cities that the master had. I like this because I think that the ticket for us in the world is the reward for faithful service is not rest, but more service. I have had calls this whole week of people knowing I have access to something because of whatever it is I've been doing and they're asking for access to that for a purpose of their own. It's a lot of work and while I'm getting those requests, I'm going up the food chain to people who are exponentially more busy than I am asking them to help me to help them. And the more you help them, the higher you rise in the responsibilities you're entrusted with and the more people who are hitting you and texting you to the point where I turned off my texts on Saturday only to turn them on Saturday night and watch my phone explode. <laughs> and people wondering why it's taking so long to free the me to get back to them. And, and the benefit of being faithful with what God's given you is he gives you more to do. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Just um, unbelievably awesome. <laughs> this week I went and visited my friend Steve Wilburn, who's a pastor at Core Church in Los Angeles. 2007, when we moved to the location at Lavery Court from Skyline, Steve came from Harvest Christian Fellowship as the youth pastor in, at Harvest Christian Fellowship, and he had had it set there. And, I mean, you know, he could have retired there, and he gave all that up to start a new work in Los Angeles. I'm like, Steve, it's L.A. I know, bro, it's awesome, and I'm excited about it. He lives, eats, and breathes evangelism. He's on KKLA. He talks a mile a minute. He's like 10 years older than me. He looks like he's 20 years younger than me. He doesn't even drink coffee, and it, could you imagine if he did? He's just always intense. And I was with him, and while we're there, we, we go to get something to eat. And he's like, hey, praise the Lord. Do you know Jesus? you know there's a God in heaven who loves you? We go through the parking stall to pay for the ticket, and he gives a guy a card. He says, you know there's a God in heaven who loves you? I'll see you in church on Sunday. And he's telling the waiter and the waitress and everybody else. I'm like, dude, I didn't, what is this? You're exhausting me. And this is a guy that when he started, he had a home fellowship, and then all of a sudden he, he He's just so intense and he burns a candle at both ends and he sleeps five hours a night and the staff that works with him gets paid dirt, but they love it and they're called to it and they're evangelizing left and right and he's just, he's just intense and he, he lives the way he expects the others to live and, and, he, and, and God blessed him with a building on, on La Cienega right by the 10 freeway and he got it for six million. He's already paid the, debt, the, the note down to 1.5 million and the building's now worth 17, maybe 18 million. Yeah. And he's telling me story after story, and, and he's, he's on KKLA, and now he's a chaplain in Los Angeles, and, and he's exhausting me. And I'm thinking, Lord, why didn't you just make two of him and none of me? 
And as I was reading it, I kind of felt like the Lord said, he's the 10 meanest, you're the five. And I'm like, I feel like I got a handkerchief. And he is saying to Steve, well done, good servant. For me, he's like, okay, I'll give you some more to do. I'm not talking to you, but I'll give you some more to do. But I look at what Steve has done with so little and how God has used it, and God has increased his responsibility. And I'm watching people whose lives I, I, I respect and want to emulate, and I'm watching them get busier and busier and busier. And there's a lot of people in the body of Christ, you just got a handkerchief. You just put it under the, the mattress. You've got your get out of hell free card. God is sovereign. I don't really need to engage or participate. I don't want to create a wake. I kind of like my life. Okay. The Lord called that servant wicked. He still got into heaven. He wasn't destroyed. But he was wicked. The Lord says do business until I come. And the interesting thing is the, the, the third servant's excuse, his disobedience was by claiming that his master was so powerful that he didn't need his servant's help. I don't need to get involved in politics because God's in, he, he appoints all positions of authority. What? Are you serious? Yeah, no, I, you know, God, God takes care of that. I just, I, I think it's a little much. Some get it. The master didn't reward the third servant. Instead, he rebuked him. He said, in a sense, the great power of the master should have inspired the servant to greater diligence, not to become disobedient and lazy. One of the other 12 rules of, of life, make your bed. Revolutionary. Stand up straight, put your shoulders back. Do your homework. We want our kids to do this, why wouldn't we with the Lord? He could have just at least put it in the bank and gotten interest, he didn't even do that. And the Lord wants us to be moved. The plan of the master was not to make money off of his servants, but to make character in them. He wanted to make them folks that could bless other people. The kingdom will be delayed, and we must concentrate on being faithful servants in the meantime. Our master's gone to a faraway country, but he's coming back. And this is, I'm going to read this last portion, and I'm going to show you a video, and then we're going to conclude with prayer. At the end of the passage... Judgment day comes. He says, bring those enemies of mine in verse 27. And the servants all had to answer for their work in the master's absence. The three had to answer for the master, their, their work in the master's absence. But at least none of them were guilty of treason. The master dealt with his enemies. His servants, he didn't treat the way he did his enemies. Enemies, Luke 19, 14, those who hated the master and they said, we will not have this man reign over us. Two diverging ideologies. There is a God, and we're accountable to him and to each other. And there isn't a God, and I make the rules. Equal outcome. Equal effort. Creativity, opportunity, rewarded proportionally. 
we, we don't want your rules, even though they'll bring blessing. Blessed is the man. We don't want that. We'll make our own rules. Social justice is you have more, I'm going to take yours. Well, that's envy and covetousness. Yeah, well, that's your rules. There's a disparity between the haves and the have-nots in this realm. Well, there's a fallen nature, yes, and capitalism without morality is deadly. But socialism is always destructive. Forty nations have tried it. They've all failed and billions have died. Oh, but this is democratic socialism. (laughs) That's what Hitler said. That's what Venezuela said. I don't care what label you put on it. It doesn't work. And the point is this. God's called us to care for one another. And he says, store your treasure in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and thieves will not break in and steal. And you go, Lord, look at all the gold I amassed on this earth. (laughs) And God will look at you and say, I don't need any more pavement in heaven. I mean, that's asphalt. The only thing going to heaven is people. People. I got to read this to you. Where did I put it? It's so good. (laughs) This was written in the 1800s. The best test for the capitalist to ask himself is, I'll get to that question in a moment. In what way can the capitalist use his trust that he may act in accord with Christ's teaching? His first effort should be to discriminate as to the employment he makes of it, that the best interests of the public will be served. The man who places his capital in forms of industry where poor working conditions are afforded, where employees are worked to the point of exhaustion, where women and children pour out their very life strength to earn a meager living while he, the capitalist, grows fat and lounges in luxury at their expense is not putting his capital to honorable service. The man who engages in a traffic whereby the morals of individuals are degraded, where men and women become physical and mental wrecks where social disease is fostered with its consequences that inflict punishment on generations to follow. That man is abusing his trust in the most blameworthy manner. The best test for the capitalist is to ask himself, is my wealth serving a social good? The man who places his money in the production of a necessary commodity which may serve to build up the physical strength of the public which may serve to raise its standards of living, which may serve to add to its knowledge, which may serve to develop individual character or add means of wholesome enjoyment for individuals, that man is to be commended. He is rendering faithful and honorable service with his capital. We have about 4,000 foster kids in Ventura. And for those who call on the name of, of the Lord, who declare themselves to be Christians, that he is your Lord and Savior, you have empty rooms, and with one Flick of the switch, all 4,000 kids would be covered in a day with the churches represented. But that's a hard decision. It requires business acumen and diligence and surrender. I'd rather have an empty room. I like the square footage. I like to be able to have my exercise equipment in there so I can hang my laundry on it. 
we're all being challenged. This is a cool video, and this is one of my favorites. I'll show it to you in a minute. This is from the Acton Institute, inspired by Lord Acton. They put together a book that is also part of a video series that deeply blessed my life. I want this to inspire you so that you're gonna go deeper, so you understand what God wants to do in and through all of us to affect the next generation in a positive capacity. So we're educated. Take a look at this and see if it ministers to you, and then we'll be finished. I'll close in prayer. My brother watched the events of September 11, 2001 from the roof of his Brooklyn home. He later told me that the ashes of those murdered that autumn morning fell across every borough of New York. Ashes like the snowflakes at the close of James Joyce's story, The Dead, falling all across a city I know so well, with whose people and accents I am so well acquainted. After my brother related this to me, I had an image in my mind of those ashes settling on the lake at Prospect Park where I used to go fishing, softly descending on Coney Island, on the beach where I first learned to swim, and encircling the bell tower of Regina Pachis where I celebrated my first mass as a priest, wafting on to Old Calvary Cemetery where my father was buried and later my mother. I see the ashes that bright and sparkling late summer morning making their descent on the whole of the city. The ashes of corporate executives, secretaries, and janitors, of firefighters from Brooklyn and Queens, men who lived in neighborhoods just like my own, firefighters like Stanley Smagala, whose wife Denna was pregnant with their daughter Alexa when the towers fell. The second building came down, so we have no contact. I know the sort. Their down-to-earth qualities and rough virtues of courage and hard work. I believe I may also now know something about the ideology employed by the man who orchestrated the attacks. In many people's minds, Osama bin Laden was simply a holdover from a primitive form of Islam. But if you listen closely to some of the man's own recorded messages to the world, a more complex portrait emerges. And what may have been his last recorded video message, released just after he had been killed and after the 10th anniversary of the September 11th attack, Bin Laden said that the path to stop the hegemony of capitalism is to carry out a real radical change so that President Obama will be liberated and with him everyone else from the hegemony of these corporations. Whether bin Laden's political ideology was deeply influenced by socialist thinking is an open question. What is undeniable is that bin Laden found it useful to tap into socialism's anti-capitalist mentality and class warfare vocabulary. With the fall of Soviet communism, many assumed that such thinking was in permanent retreat, but the impulse is never further away than human nature itself. It pipes a tune seductive to the darkest elements of the human heart envy, sloth, and pride. While promising speedy solutions to problems that the better angels of our nature crave to see remedied. 
Coming up next, we'll have an early morning traffic update, but first, these numbers from Wall Street. Dow lost six points, the S&P slid four, and the Nasdaq slumped 14. Small businesses hit hardest as investors reacted to sluggish... To build an authentically free and virtuous society is far more complicated and difficult, requiring habituation to just deeds, both visible and invisible. If we are concerned about the end of freedom in America and in our world, the decline and possible death of liberty and justice for all, then we would do well to remember the other end of freedom, the purpose and destiny of men and women called by their creator to lives of liberty and virtue. In the final analysis, very few people will go to the barricades to defend a system's utility. But a way of life that protects all that we hold dear, a civilization that elevates our spirits, a culture that is rooted in realities of eternal significance? This is a different story. For such a moral crusade, we will be able to raise a vast army. So the idea is if we want the world to see the gift of creativity, production, the idea of making something flourish and seeing a return on what God's entrusted to us as capital, capitalists, it must come with a moral price. That this can't be about us, it has to be about the Lord. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant of all. God hasn't given you this capital for your self-interest, but to invest in his kingdom, that his kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you wonder why our young people embrace socialism, it's because they haven't seen the example of godly capitalism in the church. And it's time we educate one another and operate accordingly. Watch what God will do.